If you had more time in the day, would you take a nap, read a book, talk with a friend? When something's important to you, it's easier to make time for it. Therapy can help you decide what matters most. BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on your schedule. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash hardfork today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash hardfork. Darling, Sway. I'm Kara Swisher, and you're listening to Sway, a special bonus episode of Sway, in fact. My colleague Andrew Ross Sorkin and I just wrapped up a fiery interview with Lena Kahn, the Federal Trade Commission chair. It was the chairwoman's first on-camera sit-down since assuming the role, and she gave it exclusively to The New York Times and CNBC. I spoke to Lena on Sway a while ago, before Biden won the election and before she got the big job. So I was excited to reconnect with her now, a year into the Biden administration and seven months into her new gig, to see whether or how she and the FTC are going to ratchet back the power of big tech companies like Amazon, Google, and Facebook, and to see how they're thinking about new mergers on the horizon, for example, Microsoft and Activision. Here's our conversation taped this morning. We want to welcome Chair Khan for being here. So thank, thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you both. Great We're to be here. We're thrilled to be with you. We've been wanting to, there's a million questions we have for <laughs> yeah. you. Uh, but here's where we want to start, uh, which is that this conversation is going to focus on your agency and the Department of Justice starting to rewrite this process of, of guidelines for, for mergers. And as we just mentioned, last year was such a big one uh, for deals, nearly $6 trillion for the first time ever. Uh, and just yesterday, hours before you held a press conference to talk about all this, Microsoft announced a massive transaction to acquire Activision Blizzard for nearly $70 billion. And Activision CEO Bobby Kotick addressed the issue of competition and tie-ups on CNBC yesterday. I just want you to listen to this. One of the motivations that we had for a partnership with Microsoft is the recognition of it's a, it's a big market, but there's enormous amount of competition, whether it's Tencent, who has resources that are extraordinary and a global footprint, or Sony, or Facebook, or Amazon, or Apple, or Google, or Netflix, or Disney. When you think about the race for the metaverse and for the more influence in gaming in the gaming ecosystem, we've now seen more competition than ever before. I want to start there. And I know you can't speak directly to this deal, but what's so interesting about this deal and, and rethinking antitrust is here you have a big technology company in Microsoft going into an industry that's pretty fractured and traditionally probably wouldn't get looked at by antitrust regulators in the way that two big companies coming together might, given, given, given the scale. But you're rethinking how all of this works. And so I... I Again, without necessarily speaking to this deal itself, how you think about a big tech company, maybe going after a smaller company where you might not have monopoly power in the traditional sense, but maybe under some of the new metrics, you could. Yeah, this is a phenomenally important issue and one that both agencies have been studying, um, in part because it's not new, right? It's something that we've seen for the last two decades where the top five tech firms have made hundreds of acquisitions, many of which fell beneath the radar. Mm -hmm. um, the FTC, under my predecessor, initiated a study of these acquisitions to try to understand what did we miss and what can we be learning to make sure that 
we are identifying accurately what types of deals may be illegal, even if they're not mapping on to the traditional way that we might have been looking at this. And that's really what our process to potentially revise the merger guidelines in tandem with DOJ is all about. The laws on the books, uh, Congress in 1914 said mergers that may substantially lessen competition or tend to create a monopoly are illegal. What that means in practice is going to change depending on the economy, the market conditions. And as we've seen the growth of new technologies, the market dynamics have changed. And so we need to make sure that the tools we're using, the frameworks we're using, the questions that we're asking are actually still mapping on to the reality that we're seeing in these markets. And that's what our process so is all you about. You started with 1914, which was a long time ago, <laughs> if I can do my math correctly. Um, and the changes in how this shifts, that a lot of these companies have been providing things that are free to people. If you noticed, uh, Bobby Kotick just said the word competition several times. He threw in metaverse for good measure. When I was talking to people about this deal yesterday, they kept saying distant third, competitive. Um, often they'd say things uh, like China. They mentioned China several times, a global environment. When you're thinking about these merger guidelines, are you thinking about this big tech expanding its tentacles to maintain dominance? Because they can do that as they shift and move, you know, almost like a board to wherever they want to go. Look, it's a big question, and it's also not a new question, right? The, the Justice Department's antitrust, landmark antitrust case against Microsoft was mm -hmm. about this exact same dynamic, right? Microsoft had captured control over the operating system. And the reason it was able to maintain that dominance is because there was this, what was known as the applications barrier to entry, right? Operating systems, in order to be desirable to consumers, needed to have a base level of applications. So there was a chicken and egg problem. Here come along Java, Netscape, that threatened to loosen that dominance because they provided an alternative platform on which you could have apps, and that's why Microsoft was threatened. So the Justice Department's case was alleging that the moves that Microsoft made were really designed to maintain its monopoly in the operating system mm -hmm. through kind of stifling these rivals. And so I think those are the same kinds of questions we need to be asking today, especially as we see the advent of new technologies, of potentially alternative platforms. I think whenever you see um, potential moments of transition, that's when enforcers need to be especially vigilant because that's when incumbents often panic and realize that to stay relevant, to stay dominant, you know, they may have to engage in tactics that ultimately end up being illegal. But, but when do you jump in? And I think mm -hmm. that part of it, and you can look at Facebook, uh, now Meta, in, in a way, when they made the Instagram acquisition. Now, they clearly were big in one space, didn't necessarily have a foothold in this other space. There were some people who thought that was going to be a failure of a, of, of a merger in the end. And yet, obviously, in the, mm -hmm. today, you look back with hindsight, and they had great success, arguably, in certain cases, maybe too much success. And so the question is, when is the regulator supposed to say, mm, this could work, and if it works, it's actually worked too well? It's an interesting question, and I think, you know, for enforcers, the, the real question is, is this a deal that could lessen competition? And in hindsight, don't all deals to some degree, all <laughs> deals to some degree <laughs> some are going to lessen yes, competition. Yes, substantially lessen competition or tend to create a monopoly. Mm -hmm. um, and there's also indication that Congress wanted enforcers not just to act when, you know, the third and fourth companies are merging or the first and second, but actually in the incipiency. When you said see trends towards concentration, that those can also be important moments for enforcers to jump in. We, the FTC, uh, has a lawsuit currently against Facebook, mm -hmm. um, in part alleging that the Instagram and WhatsApp acquisitions were unlawful, um, that those also were designed to maintain its monopoly. 
um, in part because, as the lawsuit alleges, there was this moment of transition to mobile, right? And, and Facebook saw that it wasn't up to the task and it really needed to make this acquisition to survive that transition. Um, in hindsight, I think looking back, looking at the documents, looking at the evidence that was available, um, now the agency was able to determine that was an illegal transaction. Um, but I think part of this process of revising the merger guidelines, of doing these studies to understand what did we miss, the goal of that is to help us answer precisely that question. So talk about that idea of what you announced yesterday, this what you missed. One of the things you, you mentioned was the study around, I think they're called killer acquisitions in terms of getting rid of competition before they became competitive. Instagram could be looked at like that. There's a whole bunch of different things. And then there's copying other people's things, which is a whole nother issue. I call it shoplifting. But, um, but when you, or plagiarism, I guess, um, when you're thinking about how to revise them, talk a little bit about what's different here, because this is kind of a moving target. In the case of Microsoft, there was one company that sat over all the others. This is a half a dozen companies that have advantages in each area, whether it's Apple, whether it's Microsoft, whether it's Google, uh, whether it's Meta. Um, so talk a little bit about how you're thinking about revising the guidelines, because it's a moving target. Yeah, and the, the project to potentially revise the guidelines is to uh, basically identify what are the blind spots right now? You know, what are the questions that we haven't been asking that we should be asking? Some of those are in the tech context, but others are relating to, you know, what's known as monopsony or labor effects. Mm -hmm. um, so this is a, a holistic project that's going to involve tech, but also, you know, be beyond tech. Um, I think in the, the context of, of these digital markets, you know, there are a few key questions. So one is, um, how, do we, how do we make sure that we're understanding in instances in which acquisitions are being made with an eye to moat building, right? Mm -hmm. Many of these firms um, historically have pursued some of their deal making with an eye to building and establishing and protecting that moat. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's a key question. Another question is, what is the role of data? Uh, we've seen throughout the ways in which data aggregation and access to commercially sensitive data, sometimes of other firms, can also give firms a, a particular edge and ensure that they survive some of these transitions. Um, and then we're going to continue to look at, you know, network externalities. What are the ways in which firms are using some of what's unique about, you know, right. digital markets to, to their advantage? You, you mentioned the word labor. Mm -hmm. And it's an interesting word because it's a new metric that your department seems to be looking at, yeah. potentially in the context of transactions and just scale and size. And so speak to that, if you can, about what that really means, how that, how you think about labor. And is it the job of the the business or the or industry simply to employ people for the purpose of employing them. It's an interesting, almost especially philosophical at, thought, especially at a moment of you know low unemployment here. That consolidation affects employment, but this is the first time you're talking about the impact of consolidation on jobs. So over the last decade, there's been a phenomenal set of research that has been trying to understand what is the state of labor markets from a competition perspective. Mm -hmm. And some of this research has showed that labor markets are significantly concentrated. Um, and it's led to, you know, additional thinking at the policy level of how this should be affecting what antitrust enforcers are doing. Mm -hmm. So the Justice Department, um, including in the last administration, started looking at no poach agreements uh, more closely, instances in which employers may be colluding to suppress wages. Um, both agencies have been looking at the ways in which mergers in particular may lessen competition for labor um, and have downstream effects on workers in ways that are harmful and that also be, needs to be on our radar. So I think this is an ongoing conversation, but 
increasingly the question is, you know, how we implement some of these priorities and not, you know, whether they're important. But this is the first time you've included labor. This is something labor's wanted for a long time, the idea of looking at antitrust through the lens of unemployment, essentially. Yeah, there's an interesting history here. I mean, um, you know, there were cases in which, uh, you know, unions were supportive of transactions because they thought they would lead to more downstream benefits. But I think um, we started to see uh, through retrospective studies instances in which, you know, mergers actually ended up having a harmful effect. And so I think that is what's significantly contributing to this reassessment. Philosoph- Go ahead. Go ahead. I was going to say, this is a philosophical question. It again, goes maybe to this idea of when do you jump in as the regulator? Do you do it with hindsight after the fact? Do you do it beforehand? I want to show you, if I can, and I, I don't know if we have a graphic of it, the top 10 companies by market cap in 2022. And if you look at that list, it's Apple, Microsoft, Saudi Aramco, Alphabet, Amazon, Tesla, Meta, uh, Taiwan Semiconductor, Berkshire Hathaway, and NVIDIA. But then if you go back just a decade, that list flips around. Now, there are some companies that are still on it, uh, about half. If you go back another decade, the list almost uh, rotates entirely. Mm -hmm. And so the question is, is the marketplace doing that itself? Should regulators be jumping in? And And when do you do it? I think there's a timing issue in all of this. Yeah, so the key task for antitrust enforcers is to ensure that we have a marketplace where firms can compete on the merits. If you're an entrepreneur or a business and you have an idea for a particular good or service and you bring it to market and consumers like it, it's successful, can you compete in a fair way? And so really the goal of the enforcers is to create a, a, a marketplace that's competitive, right. that's open, that's fair. It's not the job of the enforcers to pick winners and losers, but to ensure that firms are playing fairly and, you know, competing rather right, but than But the question is, when or, do you jump in front of the bus right. and when do you try to pull the bus back? Mm-hmm. After the fact? It, it's, it's a good question and certainly one that enforcers are grappling with. Um, you know, we, the FTC ended up bringing this enforcement action right. against Facebook significantly mm-hmm. after the fact because we thought it was important um, to ensure that, you know, the marketplace knew that these types of deals are not going to be immunized. So one of the things that Facebook has pushed, we should call it meta, I guess. Let's yep. let Mark call it whatever he wants. <laughs> uh, it, they, they bring up the idea, one, of China, that it's a global competition, that other companies, same thing in this Microsoft acquisition, I think their defense will be Tencent, which owns everything, including some U.S. companies and are not regulated in any way. Um, Epic, for Epic, example. Epic, uh, Supercell, they have, they have a lot. Right. They have a lot. And then you have Alibaba, you have Sony, you have others. Um, they're going to use that competition. Um, and I think... Facebook often talks about TikTok constantly, TikTok, TikTok, and then says China right after that, which is a Chinese uh, investors are in that company. How do you meet with the idea that comp- their argument is competition will take care of it? And ultimately, it sort of took care of Microsoft in that way, is that people shifted to other things. Now, of course, Microsoft is still one of the most valuable companies on the planet, um, I think, after Apple. But how do you when, you, when they're saying competition will take care of it, the market will take care of it? Well, there was a major antitrust lawsuit yes, against Microsoft. Yes, there was. Yes, it's <laughs> there's an open down. question as yes. to whether you what would have did. seen the growth and success of this, you know, next generation internet com- companies if mm-hmm. the Department of Justice hadn't taken the yes, action. Right? I would agree. Yeah. So I think in that case, uh, enforcement was critical to oxygenate the market and make mm-hmm. sure that those opportunities were there. 
Um, I think, you know, the, the kind of national champion arguments have been made for decades. Yes, they have. Um, it's not something that's new. Uh, definitely a question that the U.S. faced, you know, mid-century, where other countries were doubling down on the national champion model. Mm -hmm. And at that moment, the U.S. decided to continue to move forward with competition, right? There was a major lawsuit against AT&T. AT&T was broken up. And in hindsight, it was clear that the U.S. model, which focused on competition, ended up being the key way to generate innovation and ensure that we stayed ahead. And so I think um, historically we've confronted this choice before and, you know, doubled down on, on well, robust they're competition. They're saying China presents a unique situation where the government is actually pressing them to invest in U.S. companies, pressing them to be here. Um, one of the people involved in the, in the Microsoft Activision deal told me China has more consumer data and microphones and cameras stuck in the face of U.S. citizens than any U.S. company could ever, and I, I don't think he meant to say this, hope to, um, <laughs> which I was like, you hope to? Um, and so they, and they don't get regulated at all. Yeah, it's an important issue, and I think, you know, one that enforcers have thought about for some time in terms of how do you design a regime when different jurisdictions may have different rules of the road. Mm -hmm. um, in antitrust, I think what we've seen is that for the last decade or so, other jurisdictions have gone harder, right? The European Commission has gone harder. I think it's been interesting to see China take a series of actions over the last year mm -hmm. um, that actually suggested that they're robustly going to be enforcing the antitrust and their anti-monopoly mm -hmm. laws too, right? So we're not actually seeing um, the type of kind of free-for-all that was predicted. Um, and so I think it'll be interesting to see you know, how well, that continues. What was your impression or is your impression of China's regulatory crackdown on its own tech and does it make it harder for American technology companies to go to you and say, look over there, these guys <laughs> are going to come eat our lunch if we don't have the opportunity to have size and scale? I think it's certainly true that those arguments, uh, you know, lose some of their force, given that we've seen China go in a different though, direction. In terms of both from a national security perspective and, and this national champion issue, China doing what it seems to be doing. What do you think is driving that? It's a really interesting question. Um, and we don't know. Um, but I think, you know, there's historically um, been various moments in which there's been a recognition across jurisdictions that if you allow unfettered monopoly power to concentrate, its power can rival that of the state, right? And historically, uh, the antitrust laws have a rich tradition and rich history, and a key goal was to ensure that our commercial sphere was characterized by the same types of checks and balances and protections against concentration of economic power that we had set up in our political and governance sphere. And so the desire to kind of check those types of concentrations mm -hmm. of power, I think, is, is deep in, in the American tradition and also one that we've seen. Do, in certain do you places. think they have the power of governments, these companies at this point? Is that in your worldview as a, as a regulator? I think it's certainly... Um, an interesting question, and it's certainly true that the types of capabilities that we've seen some of these firms develop um, really pose difficult questions about, I think, in particular, the types of information that they have access to. Um, and that implicates all sorts of data privacy and security questions in addition to competition questions. So I, I certainly think that it's a, it's a question that needs to be top of mind for okay, all of us. Okay, but yeah, an interesting question, but what's the interesting answer? <laughs> They're too powerful? Look, I think for the for antitrust enforcers, we really view this issue through the prism of competition, whether firms are using their market power in unlawful, anti-competitive, exclusionary ways. Um, and so that's the way that we get at this. But obviously, there's a much bigger national conversation. Lawmakers are thinking about these issues. And in as much as there are a whole series of legislative 
bills that are designed to address some of these problems, I think, you know, that'll be the right venue for those discussions. Let's let's move to resources then. Um, A lot of people, this tidal wave of mergers, as you said, um, both the DOJ and the FTC have pleaded with Congress for more money. Um, There's a five, there was supposed to be a $500 million boost for each agency. It died uh, in one of the recent bills. Uh, There's a a bill by Senator Klobuchar and Senator Grassley, a bipartisan bill to increase money the agencies received from merger filings, uh, which just passed the Senate, but the House has yet to act on it. Are you under-resourced compared to these? I think you must be. I think there's about (laughs) at least 14 PR people just for Andrew and I, so I can't imagine they don't have hundreds on you. We are severely under-resourced. You know, we have around 1,100 folks at the FTC, um, that headcount is around two-thirds of what it was in around the 1980s. Um, and our resources have stayed, you know, more or less stable uh, in real terms. They've actually declined at various points over the last decade. And so when you have, like we did over the last year, a doubling of in terms of deal 4, volume, 000, right? Um, our resources stayed the same. So we have the same number of people responsible for investigating these transactions. The number of transactions has dramatically increased that creates significant strain. And we have to make very difficult choices about which billion dollar deals we're gonna you know, ensure we're closely investigating, but they're very real trade-offs in terms of what that work is gonna come at the expense of. Can you speak to those trade-offs? Meaning there's a lot of business leaders who are watching you and listening to your words right now. When you sit in the room and have to decide which, you know, we're gonna go after this company, but actually we really can't go after this company. We wanna do this because maybe there's gonna be a deterrent effect and that'll have a greater impact on creating the marketplace that you want. And maybe from an efficiency perspective, given the resources you have, you have to think about it. I, I don't know, but yeah. take us inside that room if you could. It's a very difficult question and one that definitely weighs on me. I think you mentioned deterrence. I think deterrence here is key. I think what we've seen over the last few decades is that there have been you know, mergers that have made it out of the boardroom that have seem to be facially anti-competitive, facially illegal. And I think what this suggests is that firms have not been deterred um, because the consequences of proposing those deals have not been significant. Um, many of them have flown under the radar. Enforcers, you know, were not able to take action. Um, and even when they did take action, uh, you know, you spend some money, you fight the case in, in court. But the kind of deterrence that, that we need to see in order to change the game, we're not seeing. So I think it's certainly true that that's something we think about. Um, we also think about, you know, how, what are instances, and this is true in the merger context, but across our enforcement work, um, what are instances in which certain types of actions can have a market-wide impact? Um, if we, you know, are able to obtain a particular settlement or consent decree or get a, a good outcome in court, what are instances in which that could really change the dynamic in the entire market rather than just, you know, here or there? Another thing that we think about is what are instances in which certain types of unlawful business practices have an upstream source? So certain types of intermediaries or companies that may be facilitating bad practices going upstream and really try to nip it at the source can also be one way we try to you know, channel our resources in ways that can be more efficient. So how, when you feel constrained, I'm thinking of the, the Facebook settlement, the consent decree that then they violated and then they had a fine for them. It was $5 billion. I think I called it a parking ticket. They don't care. And I was like, add a zero to it and perhaps it'll get interesting. What, it, it feels like there's a reticence on the behalf of regulators or is it just we can't beat them? Like it's, it feels like a movie, like they've got too many lawyers they're arrayed across against us, too many PR people, too many lobbyists. Um, 
that $5 billion figure seems small, although it was explained to me it's the best we could get, which seems somewhat pathetic from the U.S. government, I have to say. I was like, that's not good enough from what is arguably the most powerful government on the face of the planet. So, so that took place before I arrived. Yes, it did. Uh, yes. But no, look, I think it takes courage. Um, these are enormously well-resourced companies. Um, they are not shy about mm-hmm. deploying those resources. And I think in these moments, it's important to kind of ensure we're, we're really showing these companies, but also showing the country that enforcers are not going to back down um, because of, you know, these companies flexing some muscle or kind of trying to atim- intimidate us. And mm-hmm. so I think those are um, the types of lessons that we're trying to learn looking back over the last Decade. So not scared of losing necessarily. That's got to be a calculus is we can't win this or we, we've got to be cautious because if we lose too many, we'll lose what? It's, it's a hard assessment to make, but I think it's certainly true that deciding when moving forward and taking action is still worth it, even if it's not a slam dunk case, even if there's a risk you might lose, there can be enormously, there can be enormous benefits from taking that risk. Mm -hmm. You might win, right? You lose all the shots you don't take. Um, But I think what we can see is that inaction after inaction after inaction can have severe costs. And that's what we're really trying to reverse. Go ahead. I was going to say, do you need help, though, from Congress? that's That's what I really wanted to understand in terms of, you know, you can go to court on one side and see what the courts do. Or potentially you can have the laws rewritten. So our job as enforcers is to enforce the laws as they're written. Uh, But look, in as much as Congress determines that there are gaps, that there are instances in which the laws need to be strengthened, there are instances in which courts delivered an opinion that really isn't meeting the reality of what we're seeing and how these markets are functioning, how these firms are actually exercising their market power, I think that's certainly within, you know, Congress's purview and and strengthening the laws in that way. But do you want them to? Are you spending time with Congress right now on on those issues? So, you know, lawmakers will ask the antitrust agencies for technical assistance, for guidance, and so those processes take place. Um, look, I think it, it's, it's no secret that it's become much more difficult to bring some of the, the big antitrust cases over the last few decades. And so I think in as much as Congress wants to change that, um, to make it uh, easier for enforcers to act quickly, to act in a timely way, to kind of be able to pursue some of the worst violations that we're seeing uh, without having to you know, face the, the potential of, of, of losing significantly. Um, I think that's definitely something what that would help. What is the most important thing you need besides more money and more staff from Congress? What would be the bill that would be? There's there's all kinds of bills and non-discrimination. There's about half a dozen different bills, privacy bills, non-discrimination bills, et cetera. So I can't overstate just how important the money and resources component of, of that is. Um, beyond that, look, I think there are a whole set of ways in which um, Court decisions have have made it tougher for agencies to, you know, act in a swift way. And so I think set of changes that are being considered um, is really encouraging. Um, I think it's it's especially great to see how there's so much bipartisan interest and in, in concern. Um, and I think that really speaks to the degree to which there's a growing recognition that there is just a deep problem. And then when you think about where it's going, one of the things that's important to imagine is how you 
what case you decide. Now, you just won in the Met, won a forward motion in the Meta case. They had, uh, the judge had said, go back and do better homework. I think that's what it essentially said. How do you feel, what does that do to this case right now? I know you can't talk specifically, but there's been a lot of, the, the judge has, has ruled. Um, how do you look at that happening for, for the FTC that it's allowed to move forward? It's a terrific outcome and really allows us to now proceed with, with the actual case, right? Mm-hmm. It kind of passed, passed this key threshold point. Um, and our staff brought, you know, a terrific complaint, really buffed it up. Um, and the judge actually said in his opinion, the FTC did its homework, right? Mm-hmm. So um, it's an important step forward. And there were really some important, um, there was an important discussion in that opinion also around the ways in which the courts can understand non-price harms. Mm-hmm. So the fact that certain types of quality degradation, certain types of harms to privacy, that those could be recognized as harms, even if you're not seeing an, an increase in right. the dollar price that people are, are paying. How do you weigh those harms? That's always, I, that to me is such a central question, which is if you have lower prices on one side, but you lose- For free, not just For free, but you, but, but you either lose privacy or something else in the other. Who's to balance that? Is that for regulators to balance? Is that for the public to balance? Is that for the marketplace to balance? So the antitrust laws and the case law say that if there's harm to competition from a transaction, it's unlawful. Um, The courts expressly say that we don't want to place the antitrust agencies in the position of having to do this balancing across these different mm-hmm. markets of kind of weighing, well, they're harm to these entities, but benefits to these entities. And so that's been the traditional approach. Um, but these are exactly some of the types of questions that we are undertaking as part of our potential revision of the merger guidelines, um, asking people, you know, how should we be thinking about indices of market power? How should we be measuring some of these potential quality degradations? Um, because I think, you know, Further research and empirical work on that could could further boost us. Too. Is there an area you think is most important in that regard? Because it's not price anymore. Because this is all free, you know. And one of the things I've always thought about is how much of a cheap date we are for these internet companies. They get all the information and the money. We give them our information. We get a, a map or a dating service or whatever or an email or whatever. What do you think is the biggest problem when you have this system where you get everything for free, the public likes these services, they've never depended on them more during the pandemic, so they're necessary and useful. What do you think is the most important thing to look at when you're looking at all the various harms that could come to consumers? Yeah, it's a good question. And and certainly one thing that we're especially interested in this revision period is, is how can we muscle up our ability to show that companies have market power, monopoly power, even when they're not charging prices, right? Right now, oftentimes, enforcers have to jump through these hoops to define a particular market, mm-hmm. engage in this deep you know, market definition exercise in order to be able to show, well, you know, these are the price type metrics that are leading us to say this. But there's another approach of, of just showing direct evidence or direct effects of, of market power or of harm. Um, there are going to be looking at things like privacy degradation, um, basically the the ways in which the companies are able to use their power, even if it's not just resulting in an increase in price. Um, And so I think, you know, especially in digital markets, there's a deep conversation right now, um, and one that also falls in the FTC's wheelhouse around data privacy and security, um, instances in which firms were able to renege on their commitments and so, you know, entered the market or made certain acquisitions of firms that were a bit more privacy protective and then ended up reneging. And so all of a sudden, firms or consumers are locked in um, and suddenly have to surrender even more data or surrender to being tracked on a greater set of websites. And so I think 
those types of moments really underscore the, the, the point that in, in many instances, users are not exercising free choice and are not consenting to these practices, but really feel locked in or coerced. I want to ask you about this price issue, and I, I want to read from your very, very famous paper that you wrote at Yale. This was a paper you wrote called Amazon's Antitrust Paradox. And you wrote, it is as if Bezos charted the company's growth by first drawing a map of antitrust laws and then devising routes to smoothly bypass them. This goes to the pricing issue, I think. With its missionary zeal for consumers, Amazon has marched towards monopoly by singing the tune of contemporary antitrust. Your critics will say that you have made up your mind about this, and some will go so far as to suggest that you have almost an activist uh, approach to this role. And I'm hoping you can speak to that in, the, in this context, if you could. So look, my goal has always been to understand what's really going on in these markets. I got my start as a, as a journalist, uh, talking to actual market participants. You know, you would read in the headlines, hey, this big agriculture merger happened. It's great for consumers. And then you would go, you know, dig beneath the surface and see, well, actually, seed prices increased and farmers got hurt. So really digging beneath the surface to understand what's really going on here. Um, and I think what we see is that some of the metrics that have been used over the last decades have not really captured in full the full architecture of market power that we're seeing and how it's being exercised. And so for me, the, the key question is really, how do we make sure that our tools and our frameworks and the ways that we're enforcing the law are matching the world that we're living right. in and are not just you know theory here and, and evidence here, but our theory and our tools are evolving to meet the evolving marketplace. But they've targeted you in particular. They've also targeted John Cantor, uh, Senator Warren, as anti-tech. Um, there was an attempt to get you to, to be recused, which you won on. Um, the judge uh, said uh, specifically, it is natural for the president to select a candidate based on her past experiences and views, including the topics that are likely to come before the commission during her tenure. Courts must tread carefully when reviewing cases in this area. That hasn't stopped them from trying to focus on you as an activist. What is your answer to them when they say that, that she doesn't, she's anti-tech or, or John Cantor, who is the assistant attorney general of antitrust. They're anti-tech, they're out to get us. What is your answer to them? Look, as enforcers, we are charged with applying the law evenly uh, to, to big companies, uh, was, you know, um, and so it, it's, it's, it's really a question of, can we be even-handed in applying the law? And the fact that, you know, some of these firms have gotten maybe lighter touch treatment in the past, I think we're now seeing them respond to as some of the, the cases and the enforcement actions pile up. Um, but look, it was really terrific to see the judge come out in favor of the FTC on this recusal argument, noting that I have none of the personal ties or financial conflicts that are the basis for these types of conflicts of interest or recusal. So um, we're here to apply the law in an even-handed fashion and really ensure that we have a robust, thriving, open, competitive marketplace. Um, and if there are companies, uh, monopolies that are engaging in illegal conduct, we're going to apply the law. So you wouldn't call yourself an activist, or would you, an activist regulator? I'm an enforcer. I have the honor of, of serving in this role, and, and our job is to really enforce the law in an even-handed way. As you know, the Biden administration has argued that antitrust or maybe the lack of antitrust mm -hmm. regulation has played a role in the inflation that we're seeing in the country. Others who blame the Federal Reserve and the like. Where do you stand on that? Do you believe that the inflation we're seeing today is in large part a result of a lack of antitrust regulation? Look, I think there's wide agreement that the inflation that we've been seeing um, has a variety of sources, many of which relate to the COVID pandemic and the various disruptions that have been created through that. 
On this question of, you know, the role of, of market power, I think there are a couple of instances in which we can imagine market power could play a contributing role, right? I think one that comes to mind is instances in which an inflationary environment can give cover to companies with market power, monopoly power, to exploit that power, right? Mm -hmm. if, if prices are kind of rising around them, then they can either unilaterally or in a coordinated way raise prices in ways that might not be as easily detectable. And that's just a pure exploitation of their monopoly power. I think another instance in which we might imagine seeing it is Mer certain types of mergers and acquisitions over the last few decades have left our supply chains much more brittle, right? Capacity has been thinned out. And as a result of that, the system as a whole might be less resilient so that when you have certain types of shocks, certain types of disruptions, be it natural disasters or a global pandemic, um, we're not able to respond as quickly. And that can lead to certain types of pricing increases, too. So I think those are two instances right. in which um, monopoly or, or market power can contribute. Can, can I read you something? Uh, this is Larry Summers on this very issue, and it's, a, it's an interesting critique. He says, the emerging claim that antitrust can combat inflation reflects science denial. There are many areas like transitory inflation where serious, economies differ, uh, serious economists differ. Antitrust as an anti-inflation strategy is not one of them. Hipster Brandeisian antitrust with which the administration and its appointees flirt, and I think this is a criticism they're sending your way, is more likely to raise than lower prices. What do you make of that? Look, I think it's hard to make statements of generality on this. It's really a market-by-market market and case-by-case case assessment. Um, I think some of the work that the White House has been doing, looking at how agriculture markets have been functioning, um, is really interesting. Where We've seen a spread increase right between the, the price and the cost. Um, I think, you know, there are interesting analyst reports where people are saying this out loud in some instances, that the inflationary environment could give cover for companies to raise prices that are not going to come down as quickly. So I think it's uh, a really interesting area of study. It's an area that the government previously did study at a more micro level, uh, where Congress or agencies like the FTC would create uh, would collect data in a more ongoing way to allow us to have more insight in, in these types of issues. So when you're, we have just a few more minutes, a couple more questions around uh, this. And some of the, the people that have, that have sent me, I talk to a lot of tech people, as you know, and um, and they, they get uh, they get angry, especially that they're being targeted particularly by the FTC or the, or the Justice Department. And one of them said um, to me, and the fact that the FTC skips all monopolies, oligopolies that actually affect normal people to go after the platform for speech from their political enemies, it stinks. We can't be okay with creeping control from Democrats and only care when Trump wins. So how do you, when you think about the, the, the the criticism of tech around speech right now, and it's not speech, it's misinformation, really. I think it's been uh, cloaked in a free speech argument when, in fact, it's something else. When you think about these actions and pulling back tech, do you think about the political implications around misinformation? We're right near the, we're looking at the Capitol right now around the, their impact. Obviously, they've been called up and subpoenaed by the, by the committee, nothing to do with you, the January 6th committee. When you think about operating in an environment like that. How do you, do you have to tread more carefully? Look, we think about the antitrust issues at play, um, which I think are slightly separate from the types of issues that mm -hmm. you're mentioning. Um, I should note, though, you know, the kind of impl implication in that criticism is that the FTC is squarely focused on this industry at the expense of others. We have a broad ambit. I mean, Congress gave us a huge, huge job that covers the entirety of the U.S. economy. 
Um, we're bringing merger challenges. Uh, we're bringing challenges to hospital mergers, right? We just uh, Nvidia Arm. Uh, it's a major challenge to a, a semiconductor chip transaction. So it's really across the board. Um, historically, the FTC has brought cases in the you know retail sector, the grocery sector. Um, so the idea that this is somehow tech focused, I think, really misses the broader picture, which is that we're seeing we've seen consolidation in a more systemic way across the economy, and both the DOJ and FTC um, are taking on you know this in a holistic way. So it's not just them. I mean, it begs the question: Should there be a separate agency for that? I mean, you worked in Congress on the reports with David Cicilline. You were critical to that around. Uh, these companies. Should there be a separate agency? There is one for Wall Street. There's one for uh, agriculture. There's all kinds of other industries are regulated by specific agencies. Does there need, does the FTC need to uh, break off that, the information part? It seems to be a conversation that lawmakers are having. Mm -hmm. Uh, There was a proposal uh, to potentially have the FTC create a separate privacy bureau. So look, it's ultimately a a decision for, for Congress to make, but we see our job as doing everything we can with the tools that we currently have uh, to make sure we're, we're going after the unlawful practices. Do you have a point of view on this? On whether there should should be. A yeah. different agency. Look, I think the FTC has developed significant expertise on these issues, and especially if we are able to get the additional resources and the additional money, um, I think you know we have an opportunity to really go hard here. Um, I think, you know, standing up new agencies can take a lot of work. I think there can, you know, be frictions there that um, are important to think about, too. We had a lot of questions come in, and I wanted to uh, read one of them. This goes to the issue of copying. Copying. And uh, that that, uh, Bill Gurley, uh, the venture capitalist, uh, wrote in, uh, replying to one of Kara's tweets about this upcoming interview with you, said... Um, that he wants to know whether large platform players with network effects that are blatantly copying rivals' products and adding them for free to a different platform, think of an Instagram Stories or a Microsoft Teams, um, how would you go about blocking these moves in the future, or would you? Is that your job? Is there an element of innovation in that? Yeah, look, these are all very, you know, fact-specific inquiries, but I think at a general level, you want to be thinking about whether a firm that has monopoly power or market power is acting in an exclusionary way or anti-competitive way. I think one, you know, one reason why some of those types of dynamics have raised broader concerns is because it, it could potentially sap in, in, in innovation and investment, right? If, if you're an entrepreneur and you're going to bring a product or, or service to market, but you're not going to be able to reap the rewards of that investment because somebody's going to swoop in and appropriate it and, you know, bundle it or bolt it on. I think that can raise broader questions. Um, you know, whether it's an antitrust violation is just going to require a little bit more, you know, looking at the specific details of that. And, and is that within the purview of the FTC? I think that's what, right. what Bill was asking. I think certainly those types of dynamics, in as much as they can help firms, you know, solidify or protect their monopoly power, um, is something that enforcers, you know, look at and think about. So when you look at those numbers, what figures do you think are the most important to look at? Because in this case, when I talk to venture capitalists, they're not investing in social media. They will not invest in search. Are you kidding? Kind of thing. Uh, The last time a social media company was founded was Snapchat, which spends all its time fobbing off Facebook's copying. Um, There's not been a search. There has been Neva just started, Mm -hmm. um, but very small amounts. Do you, where is the government, where does the government play in that area to protect those companies? 
Yeah, I think you're referencing some of these kill zones that have been yeah. described where, mm-hmm. um, you know, investment dries up because right. there's a sense that if you enter, you know, you won't be able to compete um, on a level playing field. So that's definitely something that we have to be vigilant about to make sure that incumbents are not, you know, engaging in, in anti-competitive tactics. I think, as I, as I mentioned earlier, I think this is a huge issue as we see the introduction of some of these next generation platforms, right? As we see voice, cloud, virtual reality, we have to make sure that we're fully learning the lessons of the last two decades and applying them in these markets so that we're not allowing the incumbents to just extend and protect their monopolies in ways that are just squashing rivals and engaging in unlawful conduct. Okay, I have one final question about you. Okay, Um, and then Andrew will have one. I'm curious about the role of public opinion in how you think about this. Obviously, you're an interesting regulator, I think, compared to most regulators. Um, one of the things that was also interesting was when uh, when Francis Haugen made the whistleblower revelations. How did you and the FTC think about it as these revelations were coming out? Does that matter at all to you, or does its public opinion matter to you? As it definitely shifted... Uh, questions about Facebook and Meta's uh, role, and and the same thing with other tech companies. People are worried about public opinion polls are showing that as much as we use them, they're wary of them. It doesn't seem to stop them in any way. So how do you think about public opinion as as a regulator and a high-profile one? Yeah, I mean, I think in as much as there's, uh, you know, data showing that People are using some of these services, but not necessarily out of choice or doing so, you know, because they feel like they have Mm -hmm. to. I think that's always relevant to us as we try to understand what's really going on here and whether, you know, the type of notice and consent regime that has governed how we think about, say, privacy is is really still adequate. Um, We at the FTC have been doing a lot to try to ensure that we are actually hearing directly from the public. So we started doing these monthly open meetings. First time. uh, Where people can come and, and do come and share what they're seeing, if there are particular problems in the market that they think need to be on our radar. We want to be able to hear directly from people. Um, I think in D.C. it's kind of easy to kind of get disconnected from the problems that people are facing in their day-to-day lives. And so being able to have that direct channel um, is important. Do you have a direct channel to tech CEOs? Do you talk to them or not? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> That's a hot no. <laughs> you know, if uh, as part of our enforcement work, um, if that comes up, uh, you know, that might be something that happens. But uh, we, we really try to make sure we're going through regular channels. Good talk to them. Andrew, and finally, I just wanted to ask you about marketplaces, because it feels like marketplaces in the digital realm and in the physical realm are increasing in all different kinds of ways. And you're having companies like the Amazons of the world that have used their marketplace uh, to produce their own products, uh, but also to sell other people's products. And I think we're going to see this- Apple. And Apple. And I think we're going to see this in a major way when it comes to the digital metaverse, if you believe the metaverse is upon (laughs) us to bring this all back to the beginning of where we started. And how you think the play, what the rules of the road should really be. Should you either be a marketplace, and that is the business, or should you be able to produce, effectively, games, TV shows, apps, or other things within and control your marketplace? I think it's a phenomenally important question and one that lawmakers are grappling with across the world. Um, And historically, there have been sectors where Congress set those rules, right? There's a longstanding separation between banking and commerce where lawmakers recognize that because banks are playing such a critical role in providing credit to the whole economy, we don't want them to compete directly with the merchants that are going to be depending on them. And so figuring out whether those types of conflicts of interest um, or other types of problematic dynamics could emerge or ones that we want to clearly prevent in these markets, I think is going to be really important to think about. 
I do have one last question. You only have a few years, right? This is where we are one into the Biden administration. There could be a change of power uh, in, in at the midterm elections. How do you look at your time frame here and, and to get something done? You still don't have, I, I don't think it's, he's been approved, the fifth member, right, of right. The, right. Uh, the commissioner. You don't have a lot of time, correct? How do you look at the pressure that you're under? With a fierce sense of urgency. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think, look, that's absolutely true. And, you know, with, with some of these enforcement actions in particular, it can take a long time yeah. to put together the investigation. Even once you then file the complaint, it takes a while to, to work its way through court. So I think that really just adds a lot of pressure for us to be acting quickly every day to, to do what we can to drive things forward. I have heard them say they're going to wait you out. Do you think they can do that? We're going to do everything we can to enforce the law in an even-handed way. And look, I think for us, it's a big moment. Um, I think there's an opportunity here to really change um, and, and learn from the mistakes of the past. And that's what we're going to try to do. We're going to leave the conversation there. We want to thank you uh, for having thank this conversation so with both of us and with our viewers uh, and with our listeners yes. on the Sway podcast. Sway is a production of New York Times Opinion. It's produced by Naima Raza, Blake Nishik, Daphne Chen, Caitlin O'Keefe, and Wyatt Orm. Edited by Naima Raza, with original music and mixing by Isaac Jones. Special thanks to Shannon Busta, Kristen Lin, and Christina Samuelewski. Irene Noguchi is the executive producer of New York Times Opinion Audio. If you're in a podcast app already, you know how to get your podcasts. So follow this one. If you're listening on the Times website and want to get each new episode of Sway delivered to you faster than any U.S. government action on tech, which is Glacial, download any podcast app, then search for Sway and follow the show. We release every Monday and Thursday. Thanks for listening. Listening.